Welcome to all of you here on the African continent and around the world. This is Let's Talk About Health in Africa, and we are coming to you from the HSS podcast with me, Lenius Wenda. Today on Let's Talk About Health in Africa, we are continuing the Neglected Infectious Diseases series, or as they are commonly known, the Neglected Tropical Disease series, and how they affect more than 1.7 billion people on this planet, most of them in the Africa region. Specifically, we are looking at lymphatic filariasis, also known as elephantitis, a parasitic infection that is spread by mosquitoes which carry the parasite and spread it when it bites the next person. This infection affects the immune system and it basically impairs the lymphatic system, which leads to the abnormal enlargement of body parts, causing pain, severe disability, and social stigma. Like many neglected tropical diseases, lymphatic filariasis is preventable and treatable using medications that kill the parasite. According to the World Health Organization, 859 million people in 50 countries worldwide are at risk and require preventive chemotherapy to stop the spread of the parasite. Dr. Didier Bakajika, a WHO technical officer on neglected tropical diseases, whose work focuses on onchocerciasis and lymphatic filariasis, is here to talk to us about lymphatic filariasis and how big a burden it is on the African continent. Dr. Didier Bakajika, welcome to Let's Talk About Health in Africa on the HSS podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much, Lenius. It's also a pleasure for me to be with you. Wonderful. So let's begin by talking about the burden of lymphatic filariasis in Africa. But first, can you just explain to us what is lymphatic filariasis? Thank you very much, Lenius. Uh, lymphatic filariasis, also known as uh, elephantiasis, it's a vector-borne parasitic disease caused by three filarial worms that are transmitted by mosquitoes. And among the three filarial worms, we have Wichereria bancrofti, Rugia Malai and Brugia Timori. Yes, yes. So, so basically, it's a bite of a, of a mosquito that actually, you know, uh, leads to people catching the the parasite. Now, how much time does it take from the point when one gets that bite? with the infected mosquito and you get the parasite to the point when you start to actually experience problems that indicate that you have the infection? Okay, this is a very interesting question. Uh, generally, it takes four to 12 months after infection to see the sign of the infection. But for lymphatic filariasis, you need to be exposed as long as possible and get bitten by the mosquito. But the mosquito must be infected, must have the parasite. 
to be able to transmit it to you when biting. And then the parasites is going to go through a cycle in your body and then going to develop to adult worms. But also, this is not, um, how can I put it, uh, the same for everybody. Some people may take longer to see the sign of the disease after being exposed. So, but generally it takes, as I said earlier, four to 12 months. But in other people, it may take years after being exposed to see the sign of the disease. Yeah, so really variation depending on the person and how it's affecting your immune system specifically, how quickly you can start to experience symptoms. Now, obviously this is a big problem affecting many of our communities uh, across the continent. What should we do in our own families and our communities to make sure that we are safe from catching the parasite in the first place? Very interesting question. We have some measures to be followed so that we can prevent ourselves to catch the infection. As I said earlier, the parasite is transmitted by an infected mosquito. And to prevent ourselves to get the infection, we should avoid being in contact with the vector. That's number one. Number two, we should avoid being in a high risk areas where we have generally the vectors uh, transmitting the, the parasites. So these are some of the measures that uh, one should follow to avoid getting the infection at the individual level. Yes, so, so to avoid coming in contact with the, paras with the vector itself, are we talking here about, you know, sleeping under, um, you know, insecticide treated uh, nets and, um, and, and how do you avoid being in, in areas that has, you know, a lot of the, the mosquitoes? Are they, because I, I'm from Zimbabwe and in Zimbabwe we have, for tetraflies, for example, there are areas that have been declared unfit for human habitation. Do you have something, uh, has something similar been done for lymphatic filariasis to avoid, to minimize that contact or, or are there other ways of preventing oneself from being in the high burden areas? Yes, as, as I said again, uh, we have the vector transmitting the parasites, uh, mainly, uh, I mean, uh, mosquitoes, but within that group, we have different, uh, uh, if I can simplify the term, uh, types. We have like uh, Anopheles uh, transmitting the parasite of malaria. We have a uh, Culex, we have Aedes, and we have uh, Mansoni. And uh, these are mosquitoes. And uh, as you clearly mentioned, sleeping under 
a long lasting treated bed net is one of the measures that one can use to avoid uh, being exposed and being beaten by the mosquito. We can also use some repellent. Uh, these are some, uh, let's say, products when applied on the body are going to um, avoid you being in contact, avoid the vector being in contact uh, with you. But as I said, these are some of the measures that one can use at an individual uh, individual level. But as we know, mosquitoes are everywhere. Sometimes it's very difficult to, to avoid them. So, but if possible, one can avoid being in contact, being bitten by mosquitoes, being bitten by the vector that have the parasites that causes the infection. Yes, that's, that's very clear. Now, who are the most affected groups? Does it affect any particular group more than others, you know, women, children, men, or is everyone equally affected? Uh, equally affected, I can say, because when you are exposed and depending on your immune system, you may develop the signs of the, the disease. I saw myself both adults, children with signs of the disease. I was shocked in one of my trips in Madagascar to see a little girl aged five years to have the lymphedema. And when talking to the parents, I was informed that that started when she turned two years. So with that little girl, it didn't take long. So within three years, she was able to have a big leg characteristic of lymphedema. So we see also adults with the youth with lymphedema, with uh, hydrocils in uh, male, males. So there's no specific uh, age group. There's no specific group exposed. The only thing is when you are exposed and depending on your immune system, you may develop um, the signs of the infection. Transmitted in utero, then you, you talk about this little girl you saw in Madagascar who was showing quite advanced symptoms of, of the disease, and obviously, two years is very young. Could it be that she got it, you know, um, in, in the uterus? And, and in Africa, obviously, we have a very large population of people who are um, immunocompromised, people with HIV, large HIV positive population. How does that affect the, the, the disease and its manifestation? I don't think there's a relation between being immunocompromised and uh, having, I'd say, the, the disease. Uh, there's no relationship, proven relationship. The only thing is you to be exposed. And depending on your immune system, you are going to develop uh, rapidly uh, some of these signs of, of the disease. So for that little girl, I cannot say that she was exposed and she got it when she was in the uterus. As I said to you earlier, I spoke to the father. How, when did she get the, 
she, when did he see uh, the first sign of the, the, the disease in her daughter? And she, he told me that uh, he noticed that when she was two. So which means that she was exposed even being a baby and living in a very endemic malaria area. So that little girl was exposed and she was beaten several times and uh, she was beaten by infected uh, mosquitoes. And then she got the parasites and rapidly she developed uh, the signs of, of the disease. But as I said earlier, depending on your immune system, you can rapidly develop these signs, but it can also take years for someone to see the signs of the infection, the sign of the disease. Yes. So for, let's say, you know, for people who uh, take a shorter time, like this little girl to, to show symptoms, is that, is that a, you know, a better thing in terms of actually dealing with the, with the illness itself? You know, like in cancer, the earlier you catch it, the better and the, the higher the likelihood that you're going to be treated with uh, successful, you know, treatment outcomes. Is this the case with, um, with uh, lymphatic filariasis or is it really more to do with, I mean, how your immune system is reacting that whether it's caught early or later, it really makes little difference in terms of the outcomes? For lymphatic filariasis, one thing I would like to uh, let you know, Lenius, the infection can remain asymptomatic for so many years. Even when you are conducting the mapping using the diagnostics that are proposed by WHO or using the blood smear, you can find people with the parasites in their bloods. Let's say Wuchereda bancrofti, which is the main uh, filarial worm in Africa. But you see most of these people not having a single sign of the, the disease. So yes, it takes uh, so many times, so many years, sorry, for someone to uh, develop. I mean, it takes years in some people, it takes months in others, depending on how your body is, is reacting. But once you have, let's say the signs like, like uh, lymphedema, there are measures that you should follow as a patient to avoid the progression of the initial stage of lymphedema to an advanced stage of, of, of the, the, the lymphedema. So yes, there are some measures that can be followed for someone with initial stage of lymphedema to avoid the progression. But for hydrocele, it may take also, uh, I mean, some people may have the parasite, but they don't have uh, hydrocele, but when they have hydrocele, so they have to go through the surgery. Yes, so let's let's talk about prevention then, um, you know, detection of, of uh, um, lymphatic filariasis and, and, and the availability of treatment, especially uh, across the continent. Now, out of um, all of the people who need to, to have 
preventive chemotherapy across the region. What percentage would you say, or how many people are we able to reach with the preventive chemotherapy to make sure that uh, we are able to protect them from catching the parasite in the first place? Okay. Uh, to answer to this question, I'm going to give you an overview of the global and the regional burden of lymphatic filariasis. So globally, uh, the, dis the disease is endemic in 72 countries across WHO regions. And uh, in 2020, the population requiring mass drug administration was around 865 million, as you mentioned in the introduction in 2,207 implementation units. But in Africa, uh, the disease is endemic in 32 countries, and 10 of these 32 countries are co-endemic with other filariasis, like loasis. We have, we had in 2020, a population of 339 million people requiring mass drug administration in 1,775 implementation units. Thus, uh, broadly, uh, the burden of uh, lymphatic phreasis in the, in, in the world and also in the African region. But in terms of uh, prevention, there are May, I mean, there are strategic interventions that are put in place that have been recommended by WHO so that we can prevent that infection and we can prevent uh, the progression to the disease stage. We have a preventive chemotherapy using uh, different drug regimens, uh, ivermectin alone, ivermectin plus uh, albendazole, um, we have albendazole twice a year. We have this diethyl carbamazine plus albendazole, and recently uh, the IDA, which is ivermectin, diethyl carbamazine, and uh, um, uh, albendazole. We have also um, case management, and we have also um, uh, vector control interventions that are needed uh, uh, as a strategic. Uh, intervention, cost uh, strategic intervention recommended by WHO for lymphatic filariasis. You mentioned the the way you you know so so the way you would treat or provide administer the preventive chemotherapy would also be affected by you know the type of regimen you would use would depend on. Um, other filarial diseases that you have in a particular endemic area. So now all of that requires that you have, you know, precise data about where the problem is, you know, how big it is and how many other, you know, filarial diseases that are present in that population. Now, what comes to mind, you know, thinking about that, having all of this information is the challenge the perennial challenge that we have on the continent of data, the fact that we are not or do not always systematically gather data about um, 
epidemiology of diseases across different countries. And then, of course, there is also the other limitation in order to gather data, you need to detect those diseases by, you know, performing diagnosis, you know, positive diagnosis. Now, um, how are you dealing with those challenges in, in your efforts to really get on top of controlling these filarial illnesses, the problem of data, the problem of adequate diagnostics that are fit for purpose that enables you to detect these things easily at the primary care level where you are seeing the patient who is most affected by this? Okay, your question has uh, two sets, if I can say so the challenges in terms of data and the challenges uh, in terms of diagnostics. So yes, we have been able to identify quite a number of challenges working with countries across uh, Africa. And within the ESPAN, which is the Extended Special Project for Elimination of NTD, we have a data team. And the data team has been working along with uh, disease-specific uh, technical officers to support countries. Yes, data has been a big problem and uh, many challenges have been highlighted like uh, uh, joint application packages received from countries containing important errors or omissions, including unjustified changes in endemicity status, population size, misalignment between endemicity and drug requests, missing of epidemiological data, uh, missing of historical data, weak data management skills, and uh, weak data literacy within national programs. Um, there are many. And uh, the data team, as I said, has been working with countries to address uh, some of these challenges. I'm going to give you some of the uh, supports that we provided with regard to data. Uh, we address the data issues uh, by building PC NTD data repository, forecasting treatment and monitoring and evaluation activities and produce pre-populated report to be shared with countries in advance. We have been also able to standardize the review process to facilitate detailed quality control of submitted forms. We have been able to provide online supervision to countries with regard to job, and the data team has been able to develop what we call the joint application package import tool. We have also been able to train a cohort of data managers uh, who travel to countries and work with programs to improve data quality and availability from 2018 up to 2020. The data team has also been able to create analytical and visualization tools based on more relevant programmatic indicators. And the, pro the data team has been able also to increase the availability of thematic maps. We have the ESPEN portal, which is a portal where the data are epidemiological data, mapping data. So working with countries and listening to their challenges, 
the data team has been able, as I say, to increase the availability of thematic maps and database for guiding programmatic decisions. So, and we are planning in the future to have a kind of uh, SPAN sub-regional NTD data uh, herb to support countries in uh, overcoming some of the challenges, building their capacities so that uh, they will be able to uh, handle all the issues related to data and improve uh, the quality the quality of data. So these are some of the challenges related to data and how SPEN has been working to support countries. There are many, I cannot uh, go in details, but yes, data has been an issue, is an issue. We have started supporting countries. We will continue to support countries and we have other um, uh, projects uh, in the pipeline on how to improve data literacy, how to improve data management skills at the country level so that we can have data, strong data with a good quality to inform where and what should be done based on the data we have. Hopefully, hopefully with all of the support that ESPEN is able to provide to countries in terms of collecting more accurate data and enabling them to have the skills and, and, and the capacity to actually collect quality data that is dependable. Hopefully this will lead to less neglect, obviously, of the, of the problem um, with greater understanding and greater, of the demand for, for treatment, for preventive chemotherapy and, and so forth. This is the end of the first part of Let's Talk About Lymphatic Filariasis with Dr. Didier Bakajika at the World Health Organization Africa office in Congo Brazzaville joining us from Accra, Ghana. Coming up next, the second part of this conversation. Join us as we continue our conversation with Dr. Didier Bakajika, a World Health Organization technical officer who specializes on lymphatic filariasis, which affects 332 million people in 32 countries on the African continent, all of whom require preventive chemotherapy. Now, obviously, countries are probably performing at different levels, some doing better than others in terms of sharing data, understanding their epidemiology and so forth. And um, according to the WHO, countries like Egypt, Togo and Malawi have already achieved elimination. What is the biggest factor that sets countries like this apart? What, what has been the major driving factor for, for their success? you know, in, in particular in the countries like this that have already achieved elimination and in the countries where you are seeing the biggest progress in terms of being able to control and progress towards, you know, sort of um, elimination of, of these terrible diseases. Yes, as you mentioned, uh, three countries in Africa have been um, validated as free of LF as a public health problem. The first country in sub-Saharan Africa to eliminate lymphatic filariasis was Togo in 2017. 
than Egypt uh, in 2018 and Malawi in uh, 2020. Looking at these countries, there were some driving factors and uh, I can list six driving factors. The first one was early recognition of LF as a public health problem and establishment of the LF program. So the LF program, like in, uh, in uh, Togo, was created just after the establishment of the Global Alliance for Elimination of Lymphatic Filariasis in 2000. Malawi, for instance, it was quite a bit late, but we could see that the, the Ministry of Health, the government was able to recognize the disease as a public health problem and to establish LF program. The second key driving factor was the strong political commitment of top health officials. The Egyptian government provided 75% of resources needed to establish the LF program. The first round of mass drug administration in Malawi in 2008 was funded mainly by the government of Malawi without waiting for an external support. Strong political commitment of top health officials. Number three, integration and collaboration of LF program with other programs. Like in Egypt, there was a strong collaboration between the LF program and uh, the malaria and the leishmaniasis uh, program. In Togo, one could see, for instance, that there was a strong collaboration between the LF program and the mal malaria program. Number five, number four, a deeper understanding of the entomology and the use of supplemental vector control interventions. I will cite, for instance, Egypt, where the understanding of the vector transmitting the parasite, Culex pipiens, was discovered by an institution, a research institution, but working with the Ministry of Health and working with uh, uh, the filariasis the the program, they were able to use that understanding, the knowledge to implement additional supplemental vector control intervention. In Malawi, for instance, in, in Togo, the distribution of bed nets and uh, indoor resi residual sprays contributed very much to uh, the interruption of transmission. Key driving factor number four, the use of multi-sectoral approach played a very instrumental role in the interruption of transmission and the achievement of uh, the elimination of LF as a public health problem. And number six, a strong partnership. For instance, in Malawi, the Liverpool Center for Neglected Tropical Diseases was able to support technically and financially Malawi 
dealing with uh, lymphatic phariasis. Also in Malawi, the first mapping, I mean, the mapping was supported also by the African program for oncocercosis control. And Togo demonstrated also a strong partnership working with uh, the global funds to uh, the, the, the global fund to fight a, uh, tuberculosis and malaria. So these are some of the key driving factors that countries put in place to be able to see these achievements. And countries dealing with lymphatic filariasis should learn from those countries so that they will be able taking also into account their specificity to be able to interrupt the transmission and to be validated as free of LF as a public health problem. Indeed, great lessons coming from this group of countries and, 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 and those are very important lessons, you know, that you have to start with recognizing that there is a problem and then putting, responding by putting in place a program to address that challenge as a, as a public health pro, uh, challenge and, um, you know, working across sectors in order to make sure that um, the efforts at a national level are coordinated, the animal control, the environmental control, the, the, you know, all of the other aspects, the administration of preventive chemotherapy. And, and it's quite remarkable that the, the biggest progress is happening where governments are willing to put forward their own funds to say that we want to, we recognize this is a problem affecting our people and we want to do something to address that. That's, that's, that's a really important lesson and, and great to know that others can look to what has been done in those countries that have done very well, in particular in the countries where they are lagging behind. Talk to us about the progress that you are seeing. Obviously, we have the WHO um, roadmap towards uh, a neglected tropical disease roadmap towards elimination by 2030. What progress are you seeing, are we seeing across countries, especially the 32 high burden countries on the continent? And, um, you know, whether we are going to make it by 2030 in terms of reducing that burden in most countries? A very interesting question, Lenia. Uh, when you look at the situation in 2000, when the global program for elimination of lymphatic phariasis was launched and where we are today, I can say that uh, we have made some progresses. At that time, in 2000, we didn't have more than five NTD program, LF program. And today, in all the endemic countries, we have an NTD program, we have an LF program. That's progress number one. Progress number two, we have the completion of the LF uh, mapping. Because you need to map and know where the problem is to be able to go and intervene. So to date, we know where 
the problem is. We know which districts are endemic and require mass drug administration. Progress number two. Progress number three. When you look at the knowledge of um, uh, program managers in 2000, and when you look at the knowledge of program managers in 2000 and 2022, we can see that programs program managers have been trained on LF program activities. Even if we, are, we know that we have the challenge of turnover, people leaving programs and some retiring, but at least the knowledge is there and people were trained. Progress number three. Progress number four, the scaling up of MDAs. When you compare the situation in 2000 and to date, we have scaled MDA, even if we have some challenges, we have few countries where we are struggling, but there's a scale up of MDA intervention. There's also a scale down. Implementation, implementation units that were treated past transmission assessment surveys and stopped MDA. Reporting of LF MMDP activities. It's also a good progress. When you compare the situation in 2000 and to date, you can see that at that time, MMDP was a big issue, even if today it's still an issue, but we have made some progresses. We have countries reporting the number of lymphedema. We have countries reporting the number of hydrocin. We have countries reporting uh, the number uh, of I mean, people who, were provide, who have provided care. Another progress. Another progress is the validation of LF as a public health problem in three countries in Africa. Two in the WHO African region, one in the East Mediterranean, but within the African continent, so Egypt. So yes, we made progresses but the, law, the way the, the road is still long and we are working towards the 2030 uh, roadmap. Yes, when you look at the 2030 roadmap in terms of milestone, in terms of indicators, yes, we will be able to get some countries in 2023, in 2025, in 2030 being validated as free of LF. Some countries has, have made tremendous support. They have stopped MDA in all the implementation units, and they are now working towards the completion of the task three. We have countries like Mali. We have countries like Uganda. So yes, we will be able to make it. But I fully understand that the challenges are not the same in all the countries. Some countries are lagging behind. We need to support them so that they, they are able at least to meet one of the indicator, indicators of the 2030 uh, roadmap with regard to uh, lymphatic filiasis. Great to hear that we, we have come a long way and we are making great progress and that the aspiration to towards elimination by 2030 so far, you know, based on the progress that you're seeing across the continent, it looks achievable. How does 
where we are right now compared to where we were in 2000? Where we are now compared to where we were in 2000, we have uh, programs, we have implementation units known, we have uh, completion of uh, the mapping, training of programs, scaling down of in, scaling up of intervention, scaling down of intervention, reporting of LFMMDP, and uh, in terms even of support, we have now so many international agencies, NGOs, stakeholders willing to support, which was not the case uh, in, 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 in 2000. That, is, that also is a great opportunity to support countries meeting the 2030 uh, NTD roadmap. Yes, in terms of progresses, we made progresses, but the, uh, the, we have to work harder so that uh, those countries that are lagging behind, depending on their specificities, are supported. Not all countries have loasses, which is a, a, a problem. In those areas, you cannot use ivermectin. You have to use uh, albendazole twice a year. There's a cost on that. We have also uh, political instability, which is impacting uh, the implementation of uh, uh, activities on ground, because when there's a civil war, there's nothing you can do. Yes, we made progresses and we are there to support WHO and donors and uh, other stakeholders, pharmaceutical companies willing to provide it, the donation of the drugs. And we have NGOs willing to support. And we have also other sectors ready to support like the wash sector where the wash is needed. Yes, we made progresses, but we have to work harder so that we meet the 2030 uh, targets highlighted in the NTD roadmap. What will it take to close the gap that still exists right now? Uh, to close the gap, we need, as I said earlier, strong political commitments. Yes, that political commitment is needed, really needed. Programs should work closely, LF program should work closely with other programs like the malaria program. As I said, we have the vector, which is the same vector transmitting the parasites for lymphatic filariasis and transmitting also the parasite for malaria. So the LF program should work with the malaria program and with other NTD programs and other control program. We need to move from vertical program to, an, to horizontal program, which is extremely important. And when you look at the road entity roadmap, this is also one of the strategic shifts moving from a vertical program to a cross-cutting approach. We need to close this gap and achieve elimination, countries should own their program. Number four, we need to increase the mobilization of resources, looking also at domestic resources. 
And this is also one of the strategic shifts highlighted in the NTD roadmap. We need to, country programs need to build strong partnership. Alone, you cannot do anything. But when working with others, when building your partnership with others, they will come and they will support you. And then you can move forward. So yes, building strong partnership is extremely important. Collaboration with uh, research institutions. As I mentioned earlier in uh, Egypt, Egypt was able to put in place a strategic steering committee. And in that committee, they, they had members from the Ministry of Information, member from the Ministry of Education, member from the Ministry of uh, Religion. They had also researchers. They had also LF experts, part of the strategic steering committee. Yes, programs should collaborate with research institutions if we really want to close the gap and achieve the eliminations. These are some of the um, uh, action points that are needed by countries, by program, to close the gap and to achieve the elimination. Strong political commitment, collaboration between LF program and other programs, integration where possible, ownership of LF program by countries, increasing resource mobilization, mobilize, uh, mobilization in using targeting also domestic resources, building strong, strong partnership, collaboration with research institutions. Obviously, there are so many aspects to this, but what is great from listening to you is the fact that you know what you are demonstrating in the countries where you are having success is that it is possible to eliminate this challenge of lymphatic filariasis. And it starts with the leadership of the country, owning the problem, recognizing the problem, and being ready to commit resources and take action, working with others across different sectors, leveraging partnerships and uh, scaling up mass drug administration, which requires that we have enough data. We understand our disease and where it is and how much of it there is and diagnosing and understanding the demand of what's, what's needed. Dr. Didier Bakajika, the World Health Organization Technical Officer for Neglected Tropical Diseases, whose work focuses on onchocerciasis and lymphatic filariasis at the World Health Organization Africa office in Congo Brazzaville. Thank you so much for joining us on Let's Talk About Health in Africa. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Yes, it was a solid pleasure for me and thank you for inviting me. That was Dr. Didier Bakajika, a World Health Organization Technical Officer for Neglected Tropical Diseases, whose work focuses on onchocerciasis and lymphatic filariasis 
at the World Health Organization Africa office in Congo Brazzaville. He was joining us from Accra in Ghana and he talked about the gap between countries which are doing well like Egypt, Togo and Malawi which have already achieved elimination of elephantitis and those that haven't and what it will take to eliminate this dreadful disease.